Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, licensed therapist and professor. Today on the podcast, I have two very special guests with us, Christy Forrester and Alicia Guthrie-Morse. They were students in a course I taught last quarter. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hello. I thought I would have them on the podcast to talk about their experiences of their first quarter in graduate school as they trained to become therapists. But first, I want the listeners to know a little bit about you. So if you could tell a little bit about your background, where you're from, maybe what you like to do for fun, Christy. I am from Kansas originally, and I've been living in Seattle for 13 years. And um, I love photography and my puppy. What kind of puppy? A white lab. White lab puppy. Mm -hmm. Oh, cute. I've yes. seen pictures on Facebook. Yes, she's You gorgeous. take many pictures on Facebook for it, as I do with my cats, by the way. So <laughs> I'm cool with that. My cat might actually come bother you, as he was doing a little earlier. Kansas. Uh, my family hails from Kansas, the white side of my family, from wow. uh, Salina. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I just drove by there the other day. Yeah. It is the middle of nowhere. It is. With horrible coffee. <clears throat> with horrible coffee? Yeah. Horrible coffee. I, I can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> So what's it like in Kansas? What was it like growing up there? Very quiet and open and flat. And I love the storms, actually. I kind of have a weird thing for tornadoes. I know they're dangerous, but they're pretty powerful and cool to watch as Mm. well. You saw tornadoes? Oh, yeah. Interesting. And uh, I used to feel guilty for getting so excited about a tornado. That was coming to destroy people's lives? Pretty much. And you're getting all giddy? Yeah. All right, Alicia, what about you? Where are you from? I am originally from Reno, but I always say I'm from Tahoe because it sounds more glamorous. <laughs> I'm married with a, a tiny, tiny child, two and a half. He's crazy, just crazy, but wonderful. And um, I have two huge dogs. Mm. We should let them play together, Christy. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. Okay. All right, Alicia, Christy, tell us, why did you choose to become a therapist? I mean, I've done a lot of different things in my life, and this is kind of just one thing that's felt like something that I've always thought I would do well or that I would just enjoy. I've always been really uh, attracted to understanding aggression and violence, and um, I'm attracted to the idea of being like, an authority on aggression and violence and uh, intimate relationship, uh, aggression and violence and family aggression and violence in particular. And yeah, and I guess um, that along with just really wanting to help people. So you're drawn to it because you wanted to help people. Mm-hmm. And in particular, you're interested in family violence and yeah. helping people with that. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. good. What about you, Christy? Initially, I, I wanted to be a counselor. I wanted to be an art therapist or a therapist. This is 20 years ago, and I'm 40 now. So um, back then, though, I perceived uh, a counseling profession for myself as too easy or like something I thought that it would be easy. You know, I thought, well, I naturally talk about emotions or whatever. And in uh, my family growing up, uh, talking about emotions was a very feminine thing, and a lot of feminine things were also bad or not really useful. So I think on some level I had some internalized oppression in regards to thinking that talking about emotions wasn't really like a profession, a career. Um, and then so that kind of delayed the trajectory. 
then things shifted when I went back to school. I went back and got my bachelor's in uh, women's studies at the UW. Mm -hmm. I felt that working with people one-on-one is the way that I'll receive the most satisfaction in helping change the world. Mm -hmm. I was a survivor of violence myself, and I would like to work with people who are also survivors of violence. Um, People seem to feel okay to talk to me, and I felt like I must have a natural inclination in creating a safe space for someone. Mm-hmm. So, and my my intentions are very authentic. Mm-hmm. So I thought that might be a good path to go. Plus, I had a fabulous, I have a fabulous therapist. Um, and seeing how much that impacted my life and how much I've grown and healed, and that it's wildly possible, fabulously possible to be happy and healthy and live a good life again um, mm-hmm. after going through something super difficult. I just would like to see other people have that same opportunity. Great. Yeah. Why did you choose Antioch University Seattle to study to be a therapist? Well, I didn't originally. <laughs> I went to a different school. Yeah. I was really unhappy there. I spent a year at that school and just it just felt wrong for me. And then so I, I started looking elsewhere. And um, I, I guess I chose Antioch specifically I mean, for a lot of reasons, for like convenience, for all these types of things, but also just the feel of it felt more me. I, I mean, it's it's a really hard thing to put your finger on. Like you, you arrive at a place and, and if it feels right, it's kind of like what you want to pursue. And it felt right. And um, certainly after finishing my first quarter, I'm so, I'm so happy with, with my choice and um, definitely validated in, in leaving and then starting something new. It was a hard decision. And, and so I feel, I feel really confident now that I've made the right one. How long were you at another school? For a year. And that school was in Seattle? Yeah. And do you want to say what school it was? The Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. Right. Yeah. And they used to be called Mars Hill. Is that right? They did used to be called Mars Hill. And Mars Hill is a church, an evangelical church in down, downtown Seattle. Yeah. So the university used to be called Mars Hill. Now it's called Seattle School of Psychology or Theology. The Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. Yeah. And psychology. Mm-hmm. And they train master's level therapists. They do. You can get an MACP, um, a counseling psychology a master's in counseling psychology and there um and you can also get a master's in theology there and when you went there you didn't choose it because of its religious affiliation no i didn't and this was the sticky point right because i thought that i'm an open-minded person (laughs) i can deal with this this isn't a big deal and i really appreciated their their approach to psychology they're very relational and um and I talked to a lot of students about it who've had great experiences there, and I didn't realize how much theology would be kind of weaved into the curriculum, and it was really, it was really disappointing for me. And theology, like, you have to believe, or you have to know, or you have to propose such ideas to clients, or what does that mean? Yeah, so, um, so when I thought of theology, I thought of, like, the world religions, right? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. lots of different types of religions. Right. And and I guess that was the most disappointing thing, because I can really hang with lots of different religions, um, but I can't really hang with with having to learn the New and Old Testament when I'm getting a psychology degree. Like, to me, it didn't feel right. And I guess the end result is that, and there are people that want Christian-specific mm-hmm. counselors, yeah. and I guess that just um, wasn't me. Yeah, it's interesting. In Seattle, I don't know if this is true in other towns, but... A majority of the counseling degrees are at religious schools. Yeah. 
Luth- SPU, SPU is Christian. Mm-hmm. Seattle University is Jesuit. Mm-hmm. Uh, PLU is Lutheran, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Seattle School of Theology is is Christian. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting to yeah. me. And there are a lot of graduates from these yeah. programs. And like you said, there are some people that really want someone yeah. that is Christian. I supervised someone who is now in private practice, and that's what he does. He markets himself as a Christian therapist mm-hmm. and and gets a lot of work in that way. Not to say that people who don't market themselves as that way can't speak mm-hmm. about religion with clients. I mm-hmm. often speak about religion, mm-hmm. and since most Americans are Christian, I speak about Christianity with a lot of my clients. But yeah. uh, And it's not like people that go to Antioch are anti-religion. Right. Um, in fact, some of our professors are outwardly, you know, overtly uh, or they, they don't shy away from talking about such things right. and about their own life. Uh, and I, I wonder if that's representative in other towns. I, I have a feeling that it, it shouldn't be or it, it probably isn't. Uh, it just seems like one of those things that people should have more options that aren't religious-based. Right. You know? So when you went there, you had a good experience, but it was too religious for you, and so you decided to come to Antioch instead. The professors there are really fantastic, um, I have to say. They're wonderful, and I've met a couple that I, I hope that I continue to keep in touch with. Yeah, I, I've heard good things about a lot of the different schools in, in Seattle, SPU, Seattle Pacific University in particular, because they're a large couple in family therapy, marriage and family therapy program that, that we work very closely with. Uh, however, I will say this. Uh, one of my good friends from high school, his name is Jason Graves. And if you look him up on the internet, it's spelled J-A-Y-S-O-N. He's a good friend of mine, great guy. However, he is one of those conversion therapists. He's famous for for his conversion therapy for gay people, trying to make gay people not gay and has been doing it for a long time. And he went to – he went to one of the theology counseling programs in Seattle. I won't mention which one. And that point of view is supported at those schools as far as I can tell. I, I have another colleague of mine who went to the same school you did, Alicia, and she's gay, and she had to hide it. And so she dropped out of that school because she was evolving as coming out of the closet and decided that she couldn't do it anymore. And she actually has a lot of negative stories about that whole process. But unfortunately, that viewpoint is still, to some extent, supported. I mean, I can't speak for those people, of course, but... Yeah, you know, I felt like I felt like the view was kind of supported. Tolerance has hmm. how it was framed, though, which to me is kind of weird. But I will say that, again, it's that feeling. Like, you know, you know when you're in a room and you're being accepted and, and your words are being heard and understood. And, and even if they're not welcomed or even if they're not uh, in agreement with everyone in the room, they're still welcomed. And that just wasn't my sense. At Antioch, the sense is that I get is that if anyone had a point of view that was homophobic or heterosexist, they would not feel very comfortable and yeah. would, would probably never say what was on their mind. And I actually know some people that have that are heavy Christians that just won't open their mouth. <laughs> and that's another kind of oppression to some extent. But but 
but in my mind, the right kind of oppression. Right. Uh, when we're fighting against bigotry, I think I think we're doing a good good mm-hmm. thing. But on the other hand, there are people that are Christian and not homophobic that mm-hmm. are afraid to talk about their Christianity at, at Antioch, mm-hmm. and because of being labeled a homophobic person. I don't want to speak about the Seattle school disparagingly because I think that some people really enjoy it, but it definitely wasn't right for me. Right. I think you gave it a fair. Okay, a fair evaluation. You know, the okay. professors there were good. The overall philosophy didn't didn't jive with what you want to be a part of. Word. Okay. Uh, did I ask you why you chose Antioch particularly? Uh, not yet. Um, yes. I, jumping off from the um, concept of inclusion, one of the reasons I chose Antioch was for the heavy social justice message that's in Antioch. Um, and in regards to the concept of tolerance, one of the things that I think I see in Antioch versus tolerance is valuing diversity, which is a completely different way to come at it that's less judgmental in general or not judgmental at all, rather. Antioch I chose because, well, I I was trying to decide whether or not I was going to stay in Seattle, and I actually took a road trip from Seattle down to San Diego and back and looked at a bunch of schools. Mm. So I saw a lot of different schools and checked out a lot of different programs, and um one of the reasons I chose Antioch, obviously, first of all, is that it was in Seattle, and this is a beautiful place to live. It's a fabulous city. Um, second, the um, social justice portion of the program is is very dense and very important to me. And then I have several friends who have graduated from Antioch and are currently in the program and spoke super highly of it. Yeah, I don't think I've met a, a graduate that hasn't spoken well. Of- exactly. It's very well uh, received in the community um, is my feeling and then I went to the open house and uh, got to meet uh, got to meet you and got to meet um, Jerry super funny awesome person Um, and just the open house is really what sealed it for me was getting to meet people who um, work in the program and just the good vibes that I got um, at the open house I want to say something about the open house because I, well, I also went to like the sample food class, you know, the sample family origin class. So this is a sample class that my colleague teaches. We have a class that we teach in the first quarter for all counseling and therapy students called family of origin in which they investigate their family of origin their childhood, the students investigate their childhood. And Jerry came up with this idea as a way of helping people understand what Antioch was all about by holding a sample class for three hours. And for prospective applicants, they could come to this and and experience what Antioch is like. And so you went to that? Yeah, I did. Oh, God, it was so much fun. Yeah, so I had to kind of make my decision in a hurry to leave, um, to leave the school and start something else, um, to leave the Seattle school. And so so it happened to be like my husband and I's first overnight and and the this class was on that <laughs> night and I was like Nathan can we please can we please go can we please go to this class I know it's like our first our first big date night but I really want to go our first overnight overnight okay yeah so yeah so those of us that have kids really enjoy overnights where we get to go to a hotel and have oh. like time away from our child without <laughs> any interruptions and so it was like our very first one and we were so excited we got this great hotel room at the Edgewater and we were just we were so excited but then you know this food, this food class came and so I was like can we spend 3 hours doing this <laughs> is it a friday afternoon <laughs> Yeah. Friday evening. Friday it evening. started like seven or four or something. I yeah, don't know. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Nathan was, he was a, 
a champ, and he was like, he. I think he was really committed to me getting out of the Seattle school because he knew how unhappy I was. So mm-hmm. he was he was right on board. And did he, he go with you? He did. Wow. He came with me, and he sat through three hours, and it was so much fun. And I um I fell in love with Jerry. You might want to edit that out. And <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone loves Jerry. Yeah. So I don't think it's. I don't think you're alone. Depending on what you mean by falling in love with. <laughs> no. And I went up to him and and kind of told him that. And he he kind of like beamed and he was like, when I saw you walk in the room, I was so excited. You were so smiley. I just wanted to know you. It was like, it made me feel so good. And then, you know, and then I left and I was like, oh, my God, I want to go to that school. Like, they totally see me. They totally see me. I need to be seen. And he and Nathan turned to me and said, Oh yeah, this is a good place for you. I can already tell. Like looking around the room at the prospective students, this is a good place for you. And so, and that really sealed the deal for me too. How many other students were there? I'm just curious. 10, 15 maybe. Did you go do it too, Chrissy? No, I oh. wanted to. I had yeah. to work. Yeah. It was it was good. And then we went on and had some pineapple martinis at the Edgewater and went on with our night. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm curious though because, you know, in family of origin or foo, F O O as we refer to it, we investigate our childhoods and our internalized oppression and issues that we have acquired from society and from our families. And often Jerry will get people to go very quickly into their childhoods. And you and your husband are there on your overnight date, (laughs) starting it out. Uh, I'm just curious, did that have any effect on the two of you or that night or emotionally for your marriage? Or was it just kind of surface and you're just in a class and it, you know, was interesting but not transformative to your marriage in that moment? I, <laughs> I would say it was a little of both. I mean, it was it was a, a little surface as far as, yeah, I mean, we didn't like what happened in our class. We didn't go in, you know, but it was kind of revealing, like people shared some some good stuff and even Nathan shared some good stuff, which I was pretty, what, what, what? Because <laughs> <laughs> he, he normally keeps it close. Yeah. But it it wasn't so revealing, at least for our marriage, in, in the sense that we already are pretty revealing in our marriage. So okay. it was, you know, I don't think it was surprising to him how much I revealed to people I don't know or how much, you know. Obviously, we did talk about it afterwards, but we talked about it more in context of like, man, this is where you need to be. This is like, oh, did you hear what those people shared? Did you hear what he <laughs> said? Did you hear how Jerry responded to that? Did you see the movie? I mean, it was just like, wow, yeah, already like we were in a place that made me feel like comfortable and... And what a great guy. A lot of guys in that position would be justified in some ways of saying, you know, I think I'll just be at the coffee shop. Come get me when you're done. I, I don't really have any interest in, in doing that. This is your thing. That would have been understandable. Yeah, I would have, I would have been okay with that. <laughs> right. But he went mm-hmm. and it's it's a vulnerable thing to do. And, mm-hmm. and you know, you don't know what you're stepping into. Right. And, uh, and he could have easily said, pass. No, I'm not here for this program. <laughs> right, yeah. I, <laughs> Go straight. I'm just here for a bystander. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. Right, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. So so you picked a good one there. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> why did the two of you choose the couple and family therapy program? I'm curious. Because at Antioch, we have the mental health counseling track in the master's 
in counseling. And then we have a couple in family therapy track for those that want to get a degree in marriage and family therapy. There's a lot of overlap. Like in our family of origin class this last quarter, about half of you were a couple in family and the other half were mental health counseling. So I sometimes forget who is who because it doesn't really matter that much to me. But I'm curious why you chose the couple and family therapy program. Initially, well, I went to the open house and that was kind of where I got some more information about it. But I was sitting initially in the mental health counseling uh, circle and um, this didn't really weigh in too much on my decision. But I did notice that all the uh, people in the couple and family therapy circle were laughing and having a really good time. (laughs) And I was like, I want to go over there. (laughs) Um, But no, that was uh, that did draw me over to learn more about it. But um, mostly systematically from what I was explained or in regards to what a mental health counselor does is that they work within the person only, like all the issues are inside that individual. Couple and family therapy seems to be more systematic, like how you're connecting to the people around you. And that drew me in because of my women's studies background. I believe in intersectionality in regards to your culture, your race, your class, your gender, your sexuality and how um, that system around you influences the way you interact with the world. Um, So I see that happening in a family as well. You can see that happening in relationships and how all of those uh, forces mold the relationships you're in. Additionally, I feel that in regards to my area of interest of surviving trauma, the process of healing, it's really important to understand the influences that are coming from your culture around you. in order to move through the healing process in a better way, I believe. Right. Well said. The issue, for instance, of an individual feeling depressed. Right. If we look at it from an intra-psychic point of view, we would say, well, they their neurochemicals are off or they have negative thinking patterns. And these all might be factors, mm-hmm. but there are other factors that might be at play, like constant daily messages that you're a worthless person or that you're worthy of being raped or you're worthy of mm-hmm. being uh, paid less or you're worried, you know, these sorts of things are depressing and cause someone to feel bad about themselves. And then when they try to interface with that, with with the community and people are saying, well, it's your fault. You're, you have negative thinking patterns. Mm-hmm. You, 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 you are attracted to people that abuse you, it's your fault. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's even more depressing. So <laughs> when we start thinking about systems and society and then also families and how roles are, are developed, we can see that uh, the depression might have other causes that are might even be the primary cause or the only cause. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, very important too. You can't look at someone in a vacuum as far as I'm concerned. And and I don't know that that's necessarily exactly what mental health counseling, that, that side is actually doing. Um, I just know that I was more drawn to something that recognized the concept of interbeing, of how everything is woven together and you're not just experiencing your life inside your own body. You're, you're in an environment. Right. And just, just from my own point of view, ha- having worked at Antioch for 15, 16 years, the differences between the mental health counseling and the marriage and family therapy tracks are not that vast. They, there's a lot of overlap. Yes, the marriage and family therapy track has more classes and systems and society and this sort of thing, whereas the mental health counseling has more classes that are on the individual issues. But can someone go through the mental health counseling and still learn all the things that we're talking about? Absolutely. 
And that's what I love about Antioch. Actually, it's kind of rare for a master's program to have both of these. Usually they hate each other and they're competing usually, and but we work together. But if there is a distinction, that that's one of the, the distinctions that's often made. Alicia, why did, why did you choose? Almost exactly what Christy said. Christy and I immediately found each other. We loved each other because we both want to work with violence and we both want to work with victims. And when you look at somebody that's a, that's a victim of violence, there is a whole picture that has to be looked at. There are lots of different factors. And I think, I think you can find that within a system, systems perspective. Um, I think that the systems perspective is a little flawed in some ways about uh, victims, but I, I do think that it's kind of the best model that we have to work with right now with it. Yeah, so that's really attractive to me, and working with families uh, is very important to me. Um, it, within the, the cycle of violence, understanding how to break the cycle of violence, I think it's best understood in a family context. Um, I think individuals can do a lot of work for themselves, but when they're when they're able to look at the the whole family, it it I think can have a a larger impact. Mm-hmm. But I also made the decision because I I talked to a lot of therapists, <laughs> and they said if you want to get a re- if you want to be a really good therapist, then you should go to couple family therapy because they teach you how to be a very good therapist. Yeah, so they have a it's a more People friendly kind of thing, and I think it's pretty substantiated in in, in your in Christie's uh, experience just by seeing how people interact. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very people friendly. It's very it's very inclusive, and you know, and maybe that's a general generality. But no, <laughs> I'm I'm, I'm not even I'm not even sure I understand what you're saying. So so you're saying that they were saying that if you're choosing between mental health counseling and couple and family therapy, if you want to choose the side that is more people friendly, is that what you're saying? Well, very specifically, if you want to be a good therapist. You want to be a good therapist. Yeah. Interesting. Because of the well-roundedness of the philosophy or the training you get on that My side My impression uh, when, when that was said to me, it was said to me by three different therapists. Um, my sense was that uh, mental health counseling was a little bit more clinical. Hmm. On the other side, couple family therapy would, is just more warm and cozy. And yeah. um, this is my sense of what they were trying to tell me. I've heard that before, and I, and I don't know if it's true because it's all just anecdotal, but I've heard that the couple and family therapists are more extroverted, more friendly, <laughs> and, more, and, and on the flip side, more in-your-face, more obnoxious <laughs> or something. <laughs> uh, not that I would say that, but I've heard other people say that. Maybe that's a difference. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, so when treating people – how wonderful it could be if it would help to be comfortable with treating the family. Someone comes in, a, uh, I don't know, say a 16-year-old who is being physically abused by her father. How wonderful would it be to have a therapist that is comfortable and trained to say, you know what, let's bring the father in and let's have a conversation rather than someone that is afraid of that and not used to that and not trained to do that. Or even just really focuses only on her, which I think has some validity, but at the same time, this like longer sense of healing, this longer sense of uh, really putting the past behind you can, can be very effective in the sitting down and talking with the father about what damage might have been done. Even if he didn't listen, at least she was able to say it. I think in victims, particularly that's a really important step in healing. Right. And you'll see there's a difference if you haven't already in our field of counseling and therapy that there's a split between 
people that tend to want to get the families involved and people who tend not to. And you'll hear them justify either side, and neither side is right or wrong. But you'll hear people say things like, well, you don't want to bring the father. He's abusing her. That's going to be damaging to the daughter. I need her to have a sacred space. And there's there's a pro and a con to that. Uh, on the other hand, how healing and how safe and how wonderful could it be for a therapist to be there when they have a conversation and to support the daughter as she says powerful assertive things that you sort of talked about, not that you're going to slam the father necessarily, but you're going to have a conversation and, and shift the system so the daughter can feel this sense of efficacy, having changed things from her end, getting people of power on her side, on the right side of anti-violence and anti-abuse. Um, how transformative could that be in a way that individual therapy could never provide? Um, or you could listen to the father and hear him talk about how afraid he is and how much how much abuse he went through and how he gets triggered sometimes his PTSD or right. whatever it is that he's going through. What that cycle is. Yeah, in a way that if you just met with a daughter, you might have a tempt you might you might be tempted to believe the father is this evil villain right. that can't have any of our compassion that doesn't have any history or right. reasons why it led him to what he's what he's doing. And I should say that, um, I mean, my, my first belief in working with victims, and I know Christy feels the same, is the first, the base is safety. Like you have to create the safety and safety could, feeling safe could take many years. So it could be, you know, several years down the road of therapy before the father is even brought up, perhaps, um, because story doesn't often need to come first, in my opinion. Um, but safety definitely does. And so I see it as a component, but I also look at, at um, therapy for victims being kind of a lifelong experience. And so it could be, you know, like myself, like 20 years down the road <laughs> where you're finally facing these things with your father. Right, right. So it's not like as therapists, we should say, well, let's bring the family in. Or, right, Screw right. it. You know, we're family Third therapists. Session, so. Let's get it going. Let's yeah. rip off the band-aid. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, no. <laughs> and there are some historical figures in family therapy that would do that, Whitt Whitaker being one of them. But generally speaking, particularly those who are aware of trauma and mm -hmm. abuse, don't practice that mm -hmm. that uh, flippantly about such such an um, you know a sensitive issue. And as you're saying, it might be 20 years down the road, and it might not even be the father necessarily that's brought in. When at least in my mind, when I think about systems, um, it's not necessarily the family system just grows larger when you start thinking about society. Yeah, yeah I think in regards to like victims. In particular, if you're counseling just the victim, we already have a big enough issue in the world with victim blaming. And if you're counseling just the victim in that vacuum, then sometimes that comes across as a message of like, well, this is something that's wrong with you. It's, it's bringing the, the perpetrator into the picture because... That they were victimized, too, at some point. They were victimized, too, but also, like, what informed their behavior? How mm -hmm. were they... Victims of societal messages about what it is to be a man. Right. I see. Exactly. And then just kind of not being in a vacuum because the weirdest thing happens after a crime like that. You're just separated. Mm. You know, there's no connection to, to the father, maybe, or to the perpetrator and... You can't understand that crime by itself by only looking at the victim. You have to be able to say, see, how did this happen? I'm not saying that any blame would lay with the victim, but I am saying that um, as the victim themselves, if you feel completely alone in it, 
basically our culture has a tendency to, if there's a rape, for example, they have a tendency to focus all their energy on the woman or the victim because it can be male victims as well. But they'll tend to look at the victim and say, what did they do? And where were they? And what should we do with them now? And <laughs> somebody make them stop crying. <laughs> like, I mean, there's just a lot of focus on the victim and there's just like no conversation at all about the perpetrator. The perpetrator. There's no like, let's work on the perpetrator side. So are you saying that you as well would have liked to have talked to the perpetrator? Or are you just saying that you wanted the perpetrator to get some help in that way? I wanted him to get some help. Um, it's I don't know about talking to him, but it's more about bringing them into the picture psychologically and like social context, you know, like what's this? How did this happen? What What's this guy about? What? And maybe doing some activism around yeah. what might have led to him doing that behavior in the first place. Absolutely. Like, I feel it's really important to recognize the system and not just pull the victim out of the system and start working on her. You know, there's a different way. When we have a culture of violence and sexism, right, that needs to be changed and needs to be paid attention to, not necessarily just the victim of that system. Exactly. The whole system needs to be addressed and the victim needs to be aware of the system because sometimes you're not like when I went back to school for women's studies, I decided to pursue that path because I wanted to understand why so much violence was happening to women. Yeah. And in the process, I did learn that there was a system that I was unaware of. I hadn't articulated getting closer to having a conversation about it helped me situate what happened in a framework. I was like, oh, OK, it's not just about me. Uh-huh. It's how the world is working right now. The work that I do in prison is with domestic violence perpetrators. Not totally surprising, but a surprising phenomenon is that every single person that I've worked with or that I work with is a victim of Mm -hmm. child violence. Incredibly painful stories are in that room, and they're very aware and very connected to um, how that led to their crime. Mm -hmm. Um, And this program that that we're doing is uh, the first ever And it's kind of amazing to hear you speak that you want more of these things kind of with perpetrator because I think the perpetrator has a story that needs to be told and and can be really helpful and healing and and be one of those effective stops in the cycle of violence. Absolutely. I'm glad we did the interview with the two of you because I forgot that you had this connection. Yeah. (laughs) I hope we're not going off of... We have not forgotten. I hope we're not derailing the, yeah, the path no, of that. We could really go forever on this session. <laughs> I know. No, I'm tempted to. Uh, how about we say this? We'll do another podcast with the two of you. You could bring some stuff in to present maybe, and you could talk about your work, and, and we could have a whole episode that will title something along these lines. I don't know what exactly we would title <laughs> Understanding victims. Okay. Yeah, something like that. I don't know. Yeah. There's okay. one. Idea okay. number one. Okay. <laughs> Good. I know how to do that. Um, <laughs> okay. So changing gears a little bit, what was your first quarter in graduate school like? You just finished your first quarter at Antioch. Antioch is a different place. It has its own culture. And in your program as couple and family therapists in the in the master's program, you take in your first quarter, among other courses, potentially family of origin, which we were talking about earlier. And that was the class that I taught. So you were two of 16 students in my course. Christy snuck in as a 17th <laughs> student. One student ended up uh, dropping out because she didn't have a lot of time for school. But 
But anyway, Christy almost didn't make it in the class. <laughs> I was desperate. I wanted it. Yeah, I mean, just just as a just as a side note, I am very protective of that limit of sixteen because if if I don't. I'll end up with 25 students in my classes, which ends up degrading it for everybody. I mean, it certainly makes it harder for me because I've instead of 16 papers, I have to read, you know, 25. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, it's just really hard to create that safety and that sense of family that I want to create when I let it get larger. Mm-hmm. That worked out. Yeah. Very happy. <laughs> yeah. So first quarter, and I, I don't know what other courses you're taking, but I'm just curious what it was like. We were both in the same courses. Okay. Yes. What, what other classes did you take? Communication and counseling. Okay. And then food, and that's it. Oh, okay. Yes. So what was it like? What was your first quarter like? It was uh, the very first day in uh, communication and counseling. We basically started off that day where I left off the year before. Hmm. That was really awesome for me because I was like, yeah. Oh, this is where I wanted to be before. That's great. I felt like I learned so much in that class about how to sit with people and hear differently. And I can sit with people and hear story. But like, what do you do with that information? We really learned in that class what to do with that information. In my opinion, I'm sure, Christy. And and then, of course, the family of origin class. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm modeling blowing my mind. It blew my mind. Uh, what we read was wonderful, like really informative. Even now, I'm like sending some of the PDFs to my friends at the Seattle School. <laughs> read this, forwarding your podcast to certain things. Oh, you're still friends with your classmates? Oh, I have some good friends there. Okay. Yeah, they're Makes lovely sense. people. Yeah, the material was really fantastic. The papers were challenging, just really challenging to get to those places and be really honest. And um, I feel like I'm an honest person. I feel like I've done a heck of a lot of work in my life. But this class really took me to a level that sort of uh, made a lot of things make sense in a way that had never done before for me. My first quarter, friggin' hard. Glad it's over. (laughs) It was (laughs) it was awesome. It was really awesome. So you mentioned I think you said safety. Did you say safety or being able to be honest? Or I can't remember the exact word you used. I didn't use safety, but I but I will use safety. Okay. Like, yeah, and, and obviously we've established that that's very important to me. Having mm-hmm. that that base safety coming from a victim point of view, and yeah, I felt like just being able to be myself, feeling comfortable around the people that are there. I mean, kind of a, an interesting. And actually, Christy and I talked about it in you know, preparing for this podcast, (laughs) preparing as in like working out the nerves of the podcast. We talked about how, uh, how it's like when you're working on, on these papers and you're really trying to be honest and you're really trying to like, you're wanting to do not just get the papers right, because obviously that would be lovely, but to really make it worthwhile to really put yourself in the process and interact with the material in a way that you're going to absorb it the best way that you can, right? Mm -hmm. This is the goal of every graduate student, I hope, but Mm -hmm. definitely my goal. And so I really put a lot of myself in that. And then to sort of send it off. (laughs) To me. To you. (laughs) This little baby of mine, Mm -hmm. you can have that. Um, The first paper, I was like, send it off. It's okay. I'm fine with that. I can talk about my family. Sure. 
Right. The, second- the f- first paper is mainly about your grandparents and your parents and your own childhood in relation to your parents. The second paper is all about you now. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so the second paper was a little harder to pass off, and it, and only because I was so honest about things, uh, and <laughs> you know I could have not been so honest, or maybe picked some other issues that I was more comfortable. With, but I wanted to make it worth my while, and so I sent it off. And then I remember the next class that we were in, which was our last class, mm. and I sat there and I I felt a little like oh my God, please don't have anybody look at me. Oh my God, don't look at me. And I remember thinking, oh, Kirk, don't, please don't call on me. And you <laughs> mentioned one point, I'm going to call on you guys, those quiet ones. And I was like, please don't, please don't call on me because I, today I do not want to talk. I do not, like, I felt like I wanted to hide because, because you knew a lot about me. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if other people have gone through this, but I felt like, I mean, I, I definitely felt safe to give things to you, obviously, or I wouldn't have done it. And I, I, felt, uh, I felt like you really took a lot of time. You put a lot of thought into your responses. Um, the, the tone that you created in the class just in general made me feel open and willing to go to those places with you. Mm. But I still felt like, oh, my God, what have I done? Should I have done that? And, I, yeah, it was, it was a little, like... You know, I, I was, I, at one point I was like shaking in class. Mm. Yeah, it felt like, but you know, I feel those things like that. Like I feel things very... Um, physically? Physically, I yeah. do. I start to shake, my heart starts to pound. Sometimes it's like, I, I, I wouldn't say the word shame came to mind, but it maybe kind of felt like that. Like I felt like, oh my God. A little vulnerable. He knew so much about me. Vulnerable. Yeah. Right. And you specifically, Alicia and Christy... And the rest of the students, but maybe particularly the two of you, talked a lot in class and in your papers about your own personal issues as the class is designed to do. For those in podcast land, the papers are both a teaching tool of theory to help you learn theories and learn how to apply them, but also an opportunity to analyze your own family system that you came from, where that family system came from, and what issues you have acquired as a result of that. Because as therapists, we need to be aware of those issues, because we all have issues, all of us, including yours truly. And those issues will come out as we work with our clients and will make us vulnerable to not being very helpful. And the more we're aware of them and the more we wrestle with them, the better therapists we can be and really the happier we can be in life in general and in our relationships. So there's that benefit as well. And so in the paper, the second paper, I'm asking the students to write about and highlight and analyze using the course concepts their own issues as they play out now. So their relationships, what kinds of issues they bump into, their vulnerabilities, their sensitivities, what they're responsible for. They're not blaming other people for their issues. I mean, they're looking at it in a contextual way, but they're saying, I'm responsible for this. And it often involves the most vulnerable part of the student. And as a therapist and as a professor and as a human being, I am honored with being able to read these very frank and honest papers by all the students. And I I know that. And I've known that from the beginning of teaching this class. Uh, I don't take it lightly at all. 
when I sit down, I, you know, if in other classes, when I sit down to re- read papers that are more technical, like analyze this intervention that you saw on this tape, I'm just doing work. I'm reading the paper. I'm, you know, well, oh, good job. But when I'm reading your papers in family of origin class, it's like, I don't even know what it's, I can't even tell you what it's like. But I kind I, of imagine a glass of wine is involved. No. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> uh, that's be interesting. I'll have to test that out. But, <laughs> but, but really it's like, I absorb all that you're saying because I don't know if you can tell, but when I'm reading your papers, you know, I'm, I'm reading it very closely. Yeah, I can tell that. And I would write more in your paper if I didn't think it would annoy students, but like literally every word I'm like, oh, okay. And so because Microsoft Word allows me to comment a lot, uh, I do that. And so I'm like, oh, I like that. Ooh, you know, oh, that's interesting. What do you think about this? And oh, wow, that's some, that's some heavy stuff there. You know, I'm with you. So it's like, how can I communicate that I'm with people? And so I'm trying to do that, you know, in my feedback. You do uh, a good job. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I definitely felt like you were. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. I'm really, really glad to hear that. Because I know how hard it is to write these papers. Students and family of origin, I don't know if this happened to you, but halfway through the quarter start to have somatic symptoms, headaches, mm. back pain, mm-hmm. fatigue, crying a lot. <laughs> uh, uh, these kinds of issues. And it's because the things that we're doing in that class are not without their cost and not without the the toll that it takes on our soul. We're hoping that it's for the better, no pain, no gain, but it, but it has pain. And, and the other thing that I really tried to communicate, and I, I think I finally was able to sort of do it this quarter, and that was by telling you guys that this is not a school that you're required to perform in. You know, you're not here to perform. You're here to do work and you're here to become a therapist. And I want you to be a therapist. If you're deficient or somehow in some way, let's work on that. It's, it's a, it doesn't reflect on your, right. I don't know. Value is a value. Human. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because, how you're going to be as a therapist. Right. Yeah. Because right. you're good enough already. Mm-hmm. Y- your, your heart's in the right place. So I think I finally kind of communicated that from day one. And, and I couldn't really convince every student, honestly, but I think <laughs> it helped, you know, because uh, people were very honest in their papers and were very um, honest with me. And I, again, really appreciated that. Well, and it's, it's, it's a real honor to just have gone through the process, to be honest. I mean, having, having experienced another graduate school that doesn't really do the same thing. It was a real honor, and I feel like a better person for it, and I definitely will be a better therapist for it, for sure. This first quarter, too, and particularly this class, I, going off of everything you guys are saying at this moment, um, I concur with all of that. But I also really liked in the class the feeling that there was a ground – you laid a groundwork that was – it's okay to not know. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to feel insecure. It's okay to feel anything. Just feelings aren't, you know, they are maybe scary, but they're, they're just feelings and they're there and it's okay. And uh, for me, like coming from my women's studies background, when I went back to school, I went back to school when I was 35 and I kind of decided to set down kind of all my preconceptions and go in as much of a blank slate as I possibly can. And I um, approached my first quarter here much in the same way. Um, And to try to always remember that that's what we're doing. We're learning, you know, we're not supposed to know how to do this stuff right out of the gate. Like that's not how it's going to happen at all. And there are going to be bumps in the road and that learning from the mistakes are the, 
it's the most powerful way to move forward and to be a part of the process, engage, speak up, be vulnerable, open up. Um, particularly when I was in the women's studies program, I opened up quite a bit in school and got kind of comfortable with that. And I have a certain degree of comfort with being vulnerable in general. Um, and I've noticed in the past that when I do that, I learn more. And I also kind of empower other people around me to open up and be vulnerable as well. Um, there are a lot of people that feel nervous. Um, and I'm lucky because I just went through four years of women's studies where you're bearing your soul <laughs> and getting really used to it. So <laughs> I just kind of throw it all on the table because I know there's it's a more fertile ground to grow and learn when you're vulnerable and open and when you have a professor that makes it possible and coordinates that um, feeling yeah, between like the students. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, you said it so well. It's, it's an opportunity to grow yourself when you participate a lot, when you put yourself out there, if you're differentiated enough to, to do so and trusting enough mm-hmm. and have a good space to do it in. Right. And you also help others so much. And Christy, that was your main role in this class in the family of origin. Oh. You you were the most helpful person in that way because later on in the in the quarter, I asked for volunteers because I wanted to demonstrate a family therapy technique called family sculpting. Christy volunteered rather quickly, I think. I think you might have emailed with me. But. Yeah, I wanted to volunteer because I, I know when things like that come up that that's like great opportunity, opportunity. for me to learn. <laughs> yeah. Other people volunteered too, uh, but for whatever reason, you know, you, you were the one who got, who got chosen. And we went through a, a, an exercise in class. And this is later on in the quarter when we have time to really – go down roads that we don't know what are, what are going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what was going to happen. It's sometimes when I do this in class, it lasts for like three minutes or 10 minutes or something. <laughs> uh, with yours, it lasted, I don't know, like an hour or something. Maybe, yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> which, was, which was amazing. Oh, good. Okay. And, and other students have come up to me since and said that was just, you know, the highlight of the quarter for oh, them. Yeah. yeah. And so you, the exercise was that you... I asked you to ask students in the class to represent people in your family. And so you had someone be your father and your mother and so on. And then you sculpt them into a sculpture that represents symbolically how you felt during that time. You, you chose when you were seven years old. I'm curious what your experience was of that exercise. It was fabulous. Um, and it's definitely an exercise that I will have in my toolbox as a therapist, um, and then the next part of the exercise as well, it really opened up my mind, particularly at posing the individuals really brought me back to that moment. And then there were other people that I posed, my aunt and my uncle and my brother, and um, particularly posing my brother because he was five years old and it was the day that my parents were telling me they were getting a divorce or telling us. And I felt that he was unaware he was five I was seven for some reason seven two more years I was so much more enlightened than him he was in the corner of drawing butterflies right so (laughs) I was like he doesn't know what's going on but after we posed everyone I was like oh my gosh you couldn't be in that room and not have felt what was happening and to get a an appreciation of what my brother experienced um, versus kind of just writing it off as like not really an experience for him. Right. So that's sort of 
been a journey for you this quarter. Oh, yeah. Your history and your current relationship with your brother. Huge. And that interve- or that exercise, the the family sculpting, had something to do with your oh, yeah. evol- the evolution of your relationship with your brother. Absolutely. So you realized in that moment, you thought, wow, up until now, I've always thought of my brother as being oblivious, mm-hmm. maybe even a little resentful that he didn't have to be at ground zero the way you were at ground zero with your parents when they were divorcing. Yes. But through that exercise and through other things that you've done over the quarter, you've thought, well, maybe my brother was also hurt by all of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, also highlighted my desire to have him be oblivious in some way because I was very determined to protect him. Our family was very unstable and I really wanted, um, I felt a responsibility to protect my little brother. I think it was more comforting for me to think that he didn't know what was going on. I see. Yeah. So we did the exercise and it, you know, it felt somewhat intense, but not as intense as it was getting later on. Yeah. And I asked you what you wanted to do, and I I gave you a few options. You could have just ended it at that point, and I think usually that's what people will do. But you chose an option of having the father characters, played by another student, sit across from you, and you would say whatever you wanted to to your father. And that was a very powerful moment that you ran with. Yes. And I I was just in awe sitting next to you or kneeling next to you, just watching what was happening. What was that experience like for you? Wow. It it was huge. It was a big, big moment in my life. I've never been able to, because I was speaking to the person that I had chosen as my father and I got to say what I wanted to say to him. And I haven't spoke to my father for seven years, and I think that through the years, all of the things I wanted to say to him have been thought in my head, like little snippets here and there. I might say something to my friend or my mom or somebody, but I never had the opportunity to actually just say it all at once. And I think that it was really powerful. I mean, there were times when um, the person sitting in the chair was actually kind of morphing into my father a little bit, like I could kind of see my dad there. Um and it was, I mean, it was painful, it was exhausting, but it was powerful. I mean, on a quick side note, that's one of the things that's been so amazing about this first quarter is that you would think that this type of work would be exhausting, but for me, it's been exhilarating. I get home, I work full time, mm-hmm. and I take, you know, six hours of classes in a row, basically, on Tuesday nights. I get home at 10, 1030 at night, and I'm like, whoa, that was so cool. Let's, <laughs> I'm going to read about this. And like, I just love, I feel charged up from what I'm learning instead of like exhausted because I'm in school. Such um, validation. Yeah. It's really powerful. But I don't know. I've had enough counseling. I would also say that anyone who's looking forward to becoming a counselor or going into a program like this, like go ahead and get as much counseling beforehand as you possibly can because I got to the point where I realized that if I lay it all out there, it's okay. People aren't going to hate me. They're not going to think I'm weird. And that the benefits you reap from from going ahead and going deep and being open and being vulnerable um, surpass any concern for embarrassment. And it was really interesting in the moment because I was really focusing on my dad and saying what I had to say to him. But I could also see the students around me and they had tears in their eyes. And it was like, I don't know, it was very validating because I have so much pain and anger towards my father. And um, to have 
everyone in the room kind of recognize how intense that's been was really validating for me. I was like, oh, yeah, you know. Yeah, the amount of caring. Yeah, and the caring. It was like blew me away. That that everyone had. Yeah. Was very heartwarming Mm -hmm. to to witness and to be there. I mean, it it was a very powerful moment for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I... As a as the professor and de facto leader to some extent, um, I don't have any control over any of that. So that's just me watching and going, okay, what's Christy doing now? Oh wow, what what are all the other students? Look at what's happening. I don't even what's going on, you know. Right. So I'm just as much of a of a you know hapless passenger as anyone else to some degree. But you also set the context like so beautifully and so well, like the way our um, class felt so safe. Yeah. You know, right. So I, I wouldn't go there if it wasn't that safe. Okay. So I certainly put a lot of effort into that, but I can tell you that unless everyone was putting a hundred percent into it, it, it wouldn't have been what it was. So yeah, it was really heartwarming to, to see. And, and throughout the quarter, I could feel the group coming together. And it was that moment that I really felt like, Okay, we've yeah, we've really kind of definitely vaulted over some kind of thing or I don't know what it was, but it's like, okay, we are together now. Oh, you know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and after it was really cool cuz after I went like I could tell like other people wanted their 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 turn or to they had things to offer and share and there was a lot of vulnerability even in the last moments of that class that was super powerful for me and for everyone um as they talked about other issues they're facing and um yeah i think like i mean we joke around now or joke around it's not even a joke we, we refer to ourselves as the, our foo family you know <laughs> i love that like yeah. people are staying in contact and there's no letting go of that family yeah and that's really special and Huge. you've included me in that yes which is nice foo i like to be a part of it <laughs> um so, yeah, so you say counseling. Yeah, I I think you're right in that for some of the students who haven't been through much counseling or much life to some extent, it's harder for them to be more vulnerable because they're not used to it the way I think you were saying you are based on previous counseling and your previous studies. But there's something that happens to you when you're in graduate school. So this is my third time in graduate school. <laughs> Well, what was the first time? Uh, it was uh, music. Oh, okay. I have a master's in music. Oh, wow. Oboe. Performance. Oboe. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Rock that oboe. Sometimes I'm like, oh, my God, did I sound stupid <laughs> in front of all these really intelligent, wonderful people? Should I have said that? Should I? And so there's some work that needs to be done just understanding that your voice is valid, understanding that your voice is important, and that what you have to say even even if you feel it might not be worthwhile, it is so worthwhile for other people to hear. And I think, I mean, I've been in counseling for most of my life and am not really pushing myself to speak in class or do something in class. I, I wouldn't been able, to, I wouldn't have been able to ha- to create that validation for myself that my voice is needing to be heard. So it doesn't really matter how. I guess my point is, it doesn't really matter how much work you do before you get into graduate school. It's when you're in graduate school, you need to continue to push yourself. You need to continue to hear your voice in the room of people because you have. You come from a different background. You have different experiences. So 
it's important for other people to hear those experiences. Right. And when they do, it definitely enhances the class. Right. <laughs> and enhances themselves. They right. create more. Yeah. I mean, I mean imagine in Family of Origin if only one or two people talked. How? I thought it was just me and Chris. Yeah. No, <laughs> I'm an Aaron. Who could forget her? I would say Aaron. I would also say that. Um, I mean, it's always scary. Like even even though I like to be vulnerable and out there, and I my voice shakes when I start to talk about something that's intense. And like I know you and I and other people in the class, after we would speak about something kind of personal or intense during we would, like, a break, gravitate to each other like <laughs> magnets. Yeah, was that okay? Was that crazy? What was I doing? Like you know, not to use that <laughs> word, but like yeah, we were like, oh my gosh, should I have not said that? Like, yeah, I'm feeling really nervous about that. I just said that, right. and we would kind of comfort each and other. And what's crazy about that is always we would say it was so important for other people to. Hear yes, that. it yeah. is. It was so important, and, and even just just never was this the case. But even if it wasn't important, it's still okay. I mean, I think of all the stupid things I've ever said in public, and I just think, well, whatever. I mean, who cares? We're all imperfect, you know, animals. We just give it our best shot in the moment, and sometimes it doesn't come out well. So I'm really glad to hear that you guys reached out to each other. Some people out there in podcast land might be going, wow, this sounds like group therapy. <laughs> this isn't a class. They're not learning anything. They're just, they're just getting therapy in class, you know? <laughs> And what would you say to that? I mean, maybe to some degree it's a little. But, I mean, I feel like that's part of the point is because you have to bring yourself into the picture and mm -hmm. recognize what your issues are, your biases are. Um, even before I started, before I even applied to graduate school, I asked my counselor, like, these are my big things. Like, am I going to be able to get over this? Like, will I be able to work with perpetrators? You know, I have some issues with men in my life. Like, will I be able to talk to men, counsel couples and and not like take the woman's side you know or i have all these issues should i even be a counselor right yeah and i would worry about all of that and this class really helps you get close to that inside yourself and first of all see that a it's okay that you have some issues because everyone does this society is a, you're not going to get out without having some issues <laughs> um, but being able to be aware of them and um, check yourself when you're counseling someone so that you're being fair and non-judgmental and kind and compassionate and that you're actually being loving, you can still have those issues as long as you know where they are. If you trip over them and you didn't know they were there, that's going to be a problem. Right. But if you know it's an issue and then when you trip, you can say, okay, I know what that is. Mm -hmm. To me, that's probably the number one concern I had about going into counseling. So this is a class that help me find tools to deal with that um, and be able to face my biases um, with kindness towards myself as yeah. well as with concern for the other person. Yeah, the food class in particular, I would say, yes, it did feel a little like a group therapy for me. <clears throat> Only from, like, it took a while to establish safety in the class for me. And then once it did, it was like, Oh, yeah. But in this class, I think in particular, because in the other class, that wasn't my experience at all. Like, we never really bonded. I mean, we bonded in the other class, but we didn't bond with everybody in our class. Yeah. So it just wasn't the same thing. But I think what's called, what you're called to do in this class is to kind of, is to really open yourself. And a person can't open themselves without that sense of safety. So 
in 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 a sense, it has to be a little like group therapy. It has to have this this uh, sense of I can trust you with this information, and just be able to let it go. So yes, I think it was that way, but because it really needed to be that way. Did we sit in, around in a circle and talk about our feelings all the time? No, we didn't. We taught. We interacted with the with the um, information. We learned, we absorbed, we actually rarely talked about our mm-hmm. feelings. But when we had to, we had language around that, we were able to do that. And we felt safe to do that. Right. I think we're, you know, not necessarily painting the entire quarter, right, very accurately, because especially in the first four or five weeks, it's a lot of concepts and a lot of learning and a lot of discussing. It's of- a lot of feeling out each other, like wondering how I mean, us feeling you out, you like getting a sense because I, I yeah, I felt like... Mm-hmm. I mean, it's definitely a class, an academic class. Absolutely. Totally. But with, you were like setting the foundation with, you know, genograms, the, um, the family yeah. systems, um, differentiation, all of the different really theories like and academic yeah. theories and backgrounds that, that frame... Um, and then you the as work. a person, I don't know if you know this about yourself, but I'll tell you, <laughs> you as a person set up the entire term by I mean you're you're really warm you're really open you are hilarious mm-hmm. in class I mean <laughs> totally. it's so much fun to watch like t- seven to ten at night holy cow you have yeah. to have a really good teacher yeah <laughs> it's it, it's a lot of effort and so you set up this this tone of how things had to be and you you really rolled with that and included pieces as they were and kind of ran thing. I mean, how I run my groups is a little like you were running the class in that there is a, a time to talk. There's a time to listen. There's a time to talk. There's a time to listen. And I think you balanced that out really well. So it didn't kind of snowball into areas where too many things were exposed too soon or, you know, and so it was really like, I think it had a really great flow and, and you created this wonderful environment from the get-go that we all knew we were in for a great ride, right? right? Mm-hmm. Am I really right, good Christine? boundaries, I think, is what it was. Just mm-hmm. like natural, like relaxed, mm-hmm. calm and confident boundaries of like, mm-hmm. this is what we're talking about right now and mm-hmm. then there'll be room for this later. And- yeah, and very real in the sense that even when you were talking about like the quote that like hits me all the time when I think about you lecturing is like, if you weren't going to be a therapist, then this stuff wouldn't even really matter, right? Like you don't (laughs) even have to go to these places. But as a therapist, you need to look at these things. You need to, to look in yourself and take this opportunity to do those, do these things. And I think it's a place where like the uh, academic um, theory and personal life meet. And that's absolutely what my background comes from in a feminist background, which I hesitate to use that word because there's so many, it's so loaded. It can mean so many different things to so many different people. But with my feminist background, it was definitely that the personal is political. And um, I think that this is a place, and so is um, the personal relevant in Mm -hmm. academia Mm -hmm. and most academic institutions or programs that are, you know, maybe more scientific or mathematic or whatever. They are not, not a realm where we're used to bringing in the personal. In my last degree, that was the case. So this is kind of a natural step for me to have it intersect personal and academic theory. Yeah, my impression of other programs is that some of them are like us, and some of them are even more personal to some extent. The Seattle School. (laughs) 
Were they? Oh, my God. Oh, really? It was, it was seriously like group therapy, but we were in not small groups. We were in like 150 students, and we would share the microphone around, and people wow. would share their deep and personal stories, which I loved, but I felt like, wow, I really – I. Wow, that's scary. Different kind of format. Yeah, but it's a different kind of thing. Yeah, this, The safety is big for me, as we've already established. Yeah, yeah. And there are other programs that are much more academic, scientific-oriented. There's In the psychology world, for instance, in the doctoral clinical psychology world, there's actually an, a, an ethical code that refers to not pressuring students to talk about their personal life if they don't want to. And in the marriage and family therapy world, there is no such ethical code. There is an ethical code around students and not exploiting people and not, but it actually says explicitly in psychology that you're not supposed to do that. And it makes sense, of course, that you're not supposed to do that. But I think when you take that too much to heart, it, you lose the opportunity for not only personal growth and learning, but also bonding between students. The, the, the way that you guys feel now together is different because of the way the class was oriented. And I think if done right, can really be wonderful for people, again, for learning, but also just for just feeling comfortable with each other, you know, because you're going through so much together. So, so any, anything else you want to talk about Antioch or about family of origin? I did think earlier, I mean, this is more moving away from the, the feelings and talking about the logistical reasons of choosing Antioch. Um, and one of the main reasons I did choose Antioch is that it didn't require the GRE. It didn't require um, too many prerequisites. Um, some of the schools that I was, I'd, I really wanted to get going, you know, in school and uh, that it works around my work schedule and I can go to classes in the evening. Um, there were so many reasons logistically that Antioch became my number one choice that were based on the foundation of social justice and the good reputation that I'd heard as well about the But school. I think the so. requirements getting in, because um, again, relating it to my other experience, there, there wasn't really any requirements hardly to get into the Seattle school. And I think it that was really felt in my program, that we were all coming in at such different levels. So the amount that Antioch requires, I think, is so appropriate for for where you hit the ground running right when you get in. Yeah, and I don't know if this is an Antioch thing, but I think, as far as I can tell, the students that apply to Antioch are pretty advanced prior to coming in. I mean, I know the two of you and where you guys come from, and in a lot of ways, you're more advanced than some of the graduates of programs such as this, you know? So well, that's nice to hear. It, well, it's true, <laughs> well. you know? And, and, and there are other students that have similar kinds of experiences that give them expertise. And so it, it's just amazing to me, to, you know, some of the applicants. I'm like, wow, this person is already pretty advanced, or they're already wise, they're, or they're already so smart, or they're already <laughs> – I don't know if other schools are like this. My impression is that Antioch attracts older people, yeah. which tends to be people that have more experience or more, more wisdom. Not that young people don't have any wisdom. No, but there's something to be said about that, right? Like the more life you've lived, the more you can kind of – internalize different aspects of your life and work with them and and I mean it's I mean there is something to be said about age and that's another thing that I really like about heading into this field is this is like the field that you age into mm -hmm. right like the older you get the wiser you are <laughs> and the, you know the more you you're taken seriously you know what yeah. I mean yeah 
life experiences, yeah, rega- regardless of number, definitely life experiences definitely. important. But um, yeah. yeah, I also found that like for me, I love um, that there's a diversity in ages. I'm 40, mm-hmm. but I, I think I. I'm 22 in my head. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I have my still very youthful in my in my heart and mind, but um, when, even when I went back to school in the women's studies program at the UW, I was you know thirty five, and mm-hmm. a lot of the other people in the program were twenty two or whatnot. But I actually found that I learned a great deal from them. Yeah. Um, as far as the way that they live, the culture that they're coming from right now, mm-hmm. um, their life experiences, and I've met many many super wise 22 year olds um yeah indeed yeah well we have run out of time thanks for joining us for another episode of psychology in seattle take care of yourself because you deserve it and take care of other people because in all likelihood they deserve it as well and they deserve our help thanks for coming to the podcast guys thank you thank you 